Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 20, Expeditions and Explorers. Today's episode is part two of the life of Weni the Elder, a 6th dynasty courtier whose service to king and country in the reign of Pepi I took him from the security and opulence of the royal household to battlefields in Egypt's western deserts. Following the death of Pepi I, Weni continued to serve in the name of Merenre. What follows is a story of royal expeditions and daily life in the provinces, in which our protagonist recounts his life story. The death of Pepi I, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, brought no change to Weni's status. Rather than fall from favour, which was entirely possible in a world where position, status, and opportunities were dependent on familiarity with the king, Weni transitioned smoothly from one role to the next. Pepi's successor, Merenre, named Weni the Elder as Overseer of Upper Egypt. This prestigious title had first been introduced during the reign of Neusere, some 80 years earlier. Among its responsibilities were the protection of trade routes which led into Nubia, as well as protection of the villages, hamlets, and elite estates which were dotted up and down the Nile in Egypt's southern territory. Naturally, Weni described his service as the epitome of good accomplishments, with pristine conduct and perfect effectiveness. He tells of his works in the same autobiographical text in which he recounted his service under Pepi I. The service Weni gave to Merenre was as follows. I acted for the king as the overseer of Upper Egypt, to satisfaction, so that no man struck his fellow. I am one who carried out all works. I am one who counted everything that was countable for the royal residence in Upper Egypt on two occasions. I was one who performed my official duty, performing excellently in this Upper Egypt. Never had the like been done. I performed outstandingly, so that his majesty would praise me for it. From the way he describes it, you would think Weni was the greatest gift to administration ever. But the essential jobs he describes do tell us a great deal about the way 6th dynasty rulers administered their land. For one thing, an emphasis on social harmony seems to have been a key component of the overseer's duties. Rather than simply being responsible for agriculture or production, Winnie was to maintain justice and good order within the southern regions of the kingdom. 
to fail in this duty would have been a failure to uphold ma'at, the cosmic sense of order which bound Egypt together and kept the forces of chaos at bay. Ensuring that no man struck another was part of this. Resolving and preventing disputes preserved good harmony, and good harmony preserved ma'at. When he upheld ma'at by his service to the king, thus contributing in his own small way to the cosmic order of Egyptian life. Following his service in Upper Egypt, Merenre decided it was time for Weni to undertake another expedition on behalf of the royal administration. This new mission was a despatch to Nubia, to the quarries in North Sudan which produce greywack, a type of sandstone. Weni's mission was to acquire a new sarcophagus for the Pyramid of Merenre being constructed at Saqqara. The journey south to Nubia was one made against the Nile current. But in Egypt, the prevailing wind blows from north to south, thus alleviating some of the difficulties in travelling upriver. I wish I could tell you how long this would have taken, but studies on the speed of ancient Egyptian ships are few and far between, and I haven't been able to locate any really solid material. If you know of one, by all means contact the podcast, and I can update this episode in the future. Weni's journey into Nubia was essentially a journey into hostile territory, in the sense that the Sixth Dynasty rulers had not conquered or pacified this region. Campaigns were made periodically, and Weni himself led one of these under Pepi I. But the military expeditions, aimed to subjugate hostile tribes and bring back plunder, not to establish direct control over the territory. Weni's expedition would have been militarised, and would have had a troop of soldiers accompanying him for the most important purpose of acquiring the royal sarcophagus. The artisans and stonemasons required for this journey would have been brought from Egypt as needed, rather than forming a colony of their own at the site itself. Protecting quarries from raids was an expensive task, and it really isn't until the Middle or New Kingdoms that we see Egyptian kings establishing fortified bastions in this Nubian region. The journey all up probably took several weeks, if we include the quarrying time at the site itself. But upon his return to Egypt, Weni was in the highest regard at the royal court. The task of acquiring a king's sarcophagus was an unparalleled distinction. Whoever took this job was literally responsible for attaining the means by which a king would reach the afterlife. Without a protective sarcophagus, the body of a king was doomed to desiccation and decay, and his soul would be lost. Weni's task, then, was not just to acquire a stone coffin, but to acquire the sacred transport for the king's soul. It's safe to say that by this point in his career, Weni had reached the summit of his honours and splendour in the royal court. 
While he never held the highest administrative offices, like vizier, he reached a social status that was far above and beyond the average courtier. This was a journey that cemented his relationship with the king, and ensured him a splendid tomb of his own at Abydos. It is this tomb from which we get Wenny's autobiography. The journey to Nubia was not the last royal expedition Wenny would conduct. Another expedition was dispatched to Hat Nub, a site in Upper Egypt, to attain an alabaster offering table for the king's mortuary temple. Following this, Wenny was sent to Nubia for a more mundane job, digging canals. Though important, the job was time-consuming and lengthy. Labourers with wooden hoes would dig through the muddy soil, carving out access way for Egyptian ships. For people working with copper tools, this was an impressive undertaking, and it also reflects the unique river focus of the Egyptian people, which, for my listeners whose interests in ancient history has swung mainly towards the Romans or Greeks, might be something of a small surprise. We are taught to think of infrastructure as being roads, railways, highways, etc. In ancient Egypt, the ability to reach certain areas easily was greatly facilitated by the construction of waterways and canals from the main Nile River. Various royal necropolises, such as the Giza Plateau and Abu Sir region, had artificial harbours dug out and connected to the Nile by canals. By doing this, the transport of goods was greatly aided and quickened, as the large river barges Egyptians seemed to have favoured were able to travel quickly down the Nile from the quarries in the south. Wenny's job was essentially a continuation of this, but in Nubia. It was a laborious task, probably mostly thankless, but it was a part of the growing interest in Nubia taken by the 6th dynasty rulers. Nubia had long been a region whose value lay mostly in gold and plunder. Raids, or short campaigns, were the limit of royal interest, until the advent of the 6th dynasty, when we begin to see records like those of Weni. Here, the kings take an active interest in improving their access to Nubian sites and materials, all for the enrichment of the Egyptian state. Employing the services of local chieftains, Weni commissioned the building of seven riverboats in a single year. Again, this was an impressive achievement for people working with copper tools and purely manual labour. Egyptian boats were constructed without nails, using a system of wooden planks lashed together by flaxen ropes. The wood was carved into grooved shapes, which could slot together, and with the rope holding them, produced a sturdy vessel, more than capable of navigating the Nile's relatively gentle currents. Of course, you probably wouldn't want to take these sort of boats out into the open ocean. But in 1970, a Norwegian man named 
Thor Heyerdahl decided to do just that. He constructed two ships, christened Ra and Ra II, out of papyrus sourced from Ethiopia. He used the ships to attempt a crossing of the Atlantic Ocean, sailing from Morocco to Barbados. The first trip, Ra I, failed after the crew's modifications to the boat caused it to sink. A year later, having learned their lessons well, a second attempt on Ra II succeeded in reaching its destination with little trouble. Thor Heyerdahl's journeys proved that it was possible for ancient mariners to make long journeys, provided they took the right routes. Of course, this helped fuel the theories of pseudo-scientists who claimed to have found Egyptian hieroglyphs in such regions as Argentina and Brazil, giving rise to a myth that Egyptians may have colonised these regions. Now, I don't personally subscribe to these theories, given the evidence that has been brought forward to me. A study conducted in recent years on various Egyptian mummies suggested they contained trace elements of nicotine and tobacco, plants which are indigenous to the American continent. For some, this is fairly convincing evidence. Now, I'm not a biologist, or a toxicologist, but I do think it worth noting that the mummies that were studied, such as that of Ramesses II, which was discovered in the late 1800s, are exceedingly likely to have been exposed to trace elements of these chemicals during the long years of their examination. Tobacco use in Egypt is extremely high, and has been for over a century, and academics themselves are also prone to imbibing the chemical. Simply put, nicotine could easily find its way into these mummies, and finding it in their context is not definitive proof. On the subject of cocaine, I have less to conclude, but I think it's worth noting that it's not exactly hard for that to contaminate a mummy as well in the modern era. Certainly, Thor Heyerdahl proved that such a feat was possible, but he did so having the accumulated knowledge of over 4,000 years of seafaring developed by human civilizations since the time of Weni. In the middle of the 6th dynasty, Egyptians were using wooden barges and papyrus boats for their river journeys, shipping various raw materials up and down the Nile to the construction sites of the king. Weni's works were praised in the royal household of Merenre, and his work was cited as having greatly increased the efficiency of transporting goods to the royal palace, and the pyramid being built by the king. To the best of our knowledge, this work building canals and constructing ships was also the last great task that Weni the Elder undertook. He passed to the west sometime during the second half of Merenre's 11-year reign. Weni's life and times are the first true autobiography we have from ancient Egypt. The records of his exploits, the description of his place within the court, and his friendly relationships with two kings, tell Egyptologists 
more of the role of the individual in this time than anything we have seen yet. I have recounted to you the lives of such distinguished officials as Ta Shepses, Kunum Hotep, and Ni Ankh Kunum. But it is Weni who we first meet in such a detailed account. The great officials of the late 5th dynasty reveal snippets, small pieces of their lives. Weni tells us everything he achieved from the first moment of tying on the headband to the last great work he conducted for the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Merenre. Weni's works enriched the royal household. They expanded Egyptian access and influence in Nubia. And ultimately, he facilitated the construction and furnishing of Merenre's once lovely pyramid. Merenre's pyramid, located at Saqqara, is a terribly dilapidated monument and is closed to the public. Its burial chamber, located beneath the apex, features a beautiful astrological decoration, continuing the traditions that have been building in the Egyptian theological canon since episode 16. The pyramid texts, which we introduced in that episode, are only recorded in a very fragmentary state within Meren Ray's own pyramid. And their surviving contents are largely the same as those recorded for Pepi I, his father. A recitation to the earth, to Geb, to Osiris, to Anubis, to the one of many festivals. May you each make Merenre celebrate in the festival of Horus. You who are falcons, fly to the returning car of Merenre, and open for him his eyes, open up for him his nose, open his mouth, open his ears, grow for him his plumed feathers, and let him pass by the god who seizes the name of the wind. The spells recite the various duties of each god, to provide resurrection for Merenre, and ensure that his spirit will be awakened in the next world, ready to take its place among the stars. As the deceased elder god Osiris, Merenre would join his ancestors and receive their blessing. His union with Re would ensure the stability of the cosmos and the continuation of reality itself. Such spells are carved into the burial chamber and ensure the eternal sustenance of the king. Merenre ascended to the heavens in the eleventh year of his reign. He was of an unknown age. His reign was significant for the great strides he made in expanding Egypt's influence in Nubia, following the interest taken by his father Pepi I. Merenre's rule saw an expansion of infrastructure in this region, and the more intensive quarrying of resources aimed to enrich his own household. For the Egyptian kings, such acts were worthy of remembrance, and Merenre, while perhaps a minor ruler, nevertheless was treated well by his successors. The throne was now passed to a young boy, 
of nine years old, named Pepe II. Little more than a child, Pepe II's reign would prove to be the single longest rule of any Egyptian monarch, and, quite possibly, the longest reign in human history. Join us next time for the reign of Pepe II, as the Sixth Dynasty reaches its most significant moment. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. If you would like to support the show directly and help me pay for research materials and food, consider signing up to my Patreon. Patreon subscribers get access to special perks like early episode releases, supplementary notes and photo materials, early or exclusive access to YouTube videos, and an ad-free experience. For as little as five US dollars per month, you can enjoy the special edition of the podcast. If you are interested, follow the link in the episode description or go to patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening. May the great gods bless your week. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.